Hello, and welcome to this segment of Two Worlds, One Country. I'm your host, Anthony Flacavento, and this is the show where we explore the underlying causes of the things that divide us and talk to fascinating people who are doing something about it. And my guest today is one such person, Heidi Binko. She's the executive director of the Just Transition Fund. Heidi and I have been friends, colleagues, and allies now for going on 20 years. And during that time, uh, Heidi has really made her mark and distinguished herself in the realm of helping to create economies that work for ordinary people and at the same time are ecologically healthy. So Heidi, welcome to Two Worlds, One Country. Thank you, Anthony. I'm really, really honored to, to be here and uh, delighted that that I've had the opportunity to work with you for so long and uh, you know excited about what's to come. Thanks for having me. Yep, you bet. So Heidi, start off by telling us a little bit about where you were born and raised and mm-hmm. the, the path that took you to the work that you've been doing for the last couple of decades. Yeah, well, you know, um, thank you for thank you for that question. So I, I guess maybe I'll, I'll start by saying um, I ended up in I grew up in Western New York and I'll come back to that in a in a minute. So I grew up in a, in a rural county in Western New York in Chautauqua County, which I know you have a lot of familiarity with pretty poor place, distressed county by Appalachian Regional Commission standard, a small town, you know, under 10,000 people. And I will come back to that in a second. But I ended up working in getting a job in philanthropy right out of grad school. So for the the last 20 plus years, I've actually been working in climate philanthropy. And probably for about 18 or even 19 of those years, I worked with coal communities, not only all around our country, but also internationally in Australia. And it was really interesting, Anthony, because, you know, going back to probably 15 years ago, um, pretty close to the start of my my time with those places and people, I started hearing questions like, gosh, Heidi, you know, I, I don't know what we're going to do when the coal plant or coal mine closes because our local economy really, really benefits, really runs on, you know, this local economic engine. And if not coal, economically speaking, right, then what? So that was a question that had always, had always interested me. And I mentioned the philanthropic work because I did a lot of work in in philanthropy, working at the nexus of climate and coal. And when I started working on climate and coal, there was this surge of new proposed coal-fired power plants for the United States. Mm -hmm. Um, There was a proposed build-out of about 150 plants. So these were new plants that were obviously not yet in communities. And I worked to um, I worked on that problem and on that campaign because in almost all of those places where they were going to be built, they were going to be rate based. So they were going to be built on the backs of low income people in places that didn't need additional plants. Right. Now You said and rate, so, rate based, meaning that rate the based, cost yeah. of construction, which would be hundreds of millions or billions of dollars, would be built yes. into the rate the tax the uh, users that is exactly pay. right it, that it would be built into the rate that that energy consumers pay exactly exactly right right so um there was a time when climate philanthropy was really focused on making sure those new plants did, didn't get built and i was you know completely supportive of that from a climate perspective and also from a you know from an economic perspective and then the movement shifted And this shift was really important to me because uh, philanthropists and climate philanthropists started to focus on closing existing plants. And that's when something really flipped for me. I'll never forget the day when a a low, a community, not a community group, but a a big national NGO came into my town, the town I grew up in. And they said, we're, we want you to shut down your, you know, shut down your plant. And I just, it was like somebody turned on a light switch, you know, I, I thought, gosh, 
I don't, I don't know. I was, was sort of stunned, right? Because I'm thinking like my aunt worked at that local plant for 40 years. Mm-hmm. That plant, when it closed, took away uh, 40% of the local tax base. My mm-hmm. mom worked in the school system, mm-hmm. right? And so, you know, I mean, like we work with places around the country that lose 60, 70, 80, even in one case, 90% of their local government re- revenue when these plants close. So they're just, they're these massive economic engines. And I could literally see my aunt's face, the people that I knew at that plant, right? I could see the workers at that plant. And I just thought, that's really, really right. Like you're taking away people's jobs. And, you know, Anthony, I was with them from a climate perspective and definitely with them from a health perspective, because if you're from one of these communities, you're really familiar with the cone of death, right? Which is like the, the amount of cancer that, that happens in these places, the closer you live to a coal plant, the, the more your risk of cancer goes up. And, you know, so many people in my community had, had cancer, but but again, just just to throw in a, a closely related, then in the, in communities where it's not the coal plant, but it's coal mines, you, coal have, mine. a, you have another whole host of, of problems, that's, yeah, so certainly that's, for the that's, miners, but the citizens Exactly, well. right? Yeah. yeah, exactly right. And so so just to sort of recap for your, for your listeners, why is this such a big economic problem? Well, you not only have direct workers, either plant workers or mine workers losing their jobs, but the, when they lose their jobs, those communities often see three to four additional jobs being lost in the community because nobody's got money to go to restaurants or buy things or whatever. In the case of both mines and plants, you lose either severance tax or property tax revenue, and that has a huge impact on the local government. So, you know, we've sort of thought of this for a long time as a problem of just the workers, and it's absolutely a big problem for the workers, but it's a really big problem for the entire community. So I saw that not only professionally, but I saw that personally, like from that small town where my aunt was the IBEW worker in the plant. And I also had relatives in my family who were minors from Logan West Virginia. So um, it was, it was just, I, I don't know, it was just really interesting to me and it was really, really personal. And so I started again, once the movement shift to existing plants, I started doing more and more of this work and to kind of fast forward ahead, uh, President Obama, when he was in office, he introduced this program called the power program, which was the first time that federal funds were ever made to available to support communities and coal communities in transition. And I used that as an opportunity. I had a partner at the time. We used that as an opportunity to start the fund to try to help communities access those federal dollars because we knew how badly that they were needed. And that was the start of the just transition fund in 2015, which I can say more about, but that's really sure. how and I got so, here. So that was in President Obama's second term, and mm-hmm. it was what we could talk about the order of those two major coal-related policies. Mm-hmm. The, the first mm-hmm. one, um, monitoring carbon emissions and basically hastening, we should say, the close of coal power plants mm-hmm. and coal mines, and then the second term focusing on the transition for workers. So mm-hmm. so let's talk a little bit about what that means, a just transition. Because when you talked about yeah. being in that room in, in Chautauqua County and hearing environmental mm-hmm. activists saying we're going to close this down, it reminded me of probably around the same time, maybe a few years earlier, I was getting at the time the Sierra Club's national magazine, and I remember mm-hmm. that they always – celebrated in an unabashed way when mm-hmm. a coal power plant or major mining operation closed. And I'm thinking, well, yeah, I get that it's good in the long term for the environment. But when you celebrate this, you are really alienating thousands yes, you are. thousands yes. of people that depend on this. So, so it seems like that, you called it the nexus of climate and mm-hmm. coal, 
That mm-hmm. must be at the heart of this definition of just transition. What what does that mean in layperson's yeah. terms? It is for me, Anthony. You know, um, the, the term just transition, as you know, got its start by the labor movement back on the international scene, I think in the, the night, late 1980s, early 1990s, somewhere around that time. And I think over the years, it's been used and adopted by many and the definition has grown. So now when people talk about just transition, they talk about some people use it to define a just transition away from all fossil fuels. Some people use it to talk about the end of mass incarceration and other and other human rights. I mean, it's just really, really, really broad. Okay. For for me and for us at the Just Transition, we have really used it in the spirit in which a lot of your great thought partners in Appalachia started using the term in the 90s to apply to the specifically to the tra- the economic transition away from coal. And so that's how we use it today. So the Just Transition Fund, when we think about just transition, we are looking at this as an economic problem, which I just described. And we are thinking about it specifically about um, in places where coal plants or coal mines closed. And I think what that does is that gives us a very concrete and specific problem to solve that's also manageable. But don't get me wrong, it's super ambitious because solving this problem is is a big problem in the United States economically, particularly from a cost perspective. But it, it also is sort of manageable. Um, one of the reasons at the JTF that we decided to, to focus on coal and not think more about fossil fuels is because um, coal was in a much, much different place and really still is in terms of market forces to those to, to oil and gas. So people, even in the, the most staunch um, coal communities, like in Wyoming, are willing, they, they know that they, they want to diversify their economy. Now they want coal to be a mix, but they want to also, they know that they, they need to diversify. You can't have those conversations in like, let's say oil towns. So the market forces were, were one reason we focused on, on coal. The second thing is you know, these are really ultimately economic adjustment problems. Like we've learned a lot. I've learned a lot personally. I know you have from the transition away from tobacco, steel, base closures, plant closures. So at the end of the day, even though the local situation and local context is coal, it's an economic, it's the type of economic adjustment problem or phase out that we've seen before. So our sort of theory was, or our hypothesis was, what can we learn from coal communities that then one day when the world is ready, we can apply to transition oil and gas communities, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. If and when that, you know, that should come up. So anyway, so that is how we define a just transition. Um, and that is the that is the work we do. So the, the justice side of it, there's the ecological side of moving away from coal. There's the health side. The justice side mm-hmm. is uh, prioritizing the people working in the mines and plants and their neighbors in the communities who are impacted mm-hmm. by all the sort of ripple effects that you've already described. Mm-hmm. And it's sort of three prong, if you if you will, and this sort of gets a little bit more into our work. But you know, you you referenced it in your in your introduction. But we're trying to build resilient economies, and what does that mean in this day and age? Right. Well, it means you have to think about energy resilience, and you have to think about climate change. So you don't want to invest in in a carbon intensive economic development. Um, you want to make sure that you're thinking about environmental sustainability because. In a lot of respects, it starts there. Ask any community that's been devastated by, um, you know, coal ash waste or tailings from a, a coal mine. Right, you have to start.
start with a clean environment before you can do the economic development. And then at the the root, right, or the 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 um, I would say the problem that we prioritize the most is um, building those equitable economies, meaning that the economic development that you have has to work for people in those places. And that's why when we do this work, we do it in a way that is not top down, but it is driven by what local community wants. And it's done in a way that makes sure that the local economy gets as strengthened as possible. So it means that more dollars stay to circulate in that economy than they do leave out. And when you start looking at the problem of that way, it sort of naturally brings up economic development solutions that fit in and economic solutions that don't. So that's let's move into that uh, now with a question about the role that JTF plays, because mm-hmm. in every respect that I've seen, JTF has prioritized not just the economic transition writ large, but doing it in this bottom-up fashion in which mm-hmm. both dollars circulate locally. And to do that, you That's have right. to have a diverse sort of multifaceted mm-hmm. economy or there's nothing to circulate. But also in which the key decisions about the form of economic development, the particular business or industry, et cetera, are largely made by local people, from mm-hmm. from entrepreneurs to leaders of nonprofit social enterprises to traditional businesses. So mm-hmm. with that as this kind of framework, where does JTF, the Just Transition Fund, fit into that? So just maybe take a step back for a real quick second. So just again for your listeners, so the Just Transition Fund, we've been working since 2015 in places across the country where a national fund impacted by the closure of coal plants or coal mines. Um, Again, we do this work in a bottom-up way. And we have, if you were to sort of look at our programs, um, the easiest way to sort of describe us is, you know, to look at, is to think about our work to help communities access federal funds, to help communities advocate for the policies they need. And then we have a whole stream of our work to convene. And so when you are talking about, maybe I'll start with, I'm gonna start with the policy first, because I think in some cases that's a a necessary like precursor to all this. And it describes nicely the work we did in the last couple of years. There was a time during the Trump administration when there was a lull, and you know this because you worked with us as part of our national economic transition platform. But everything that we do, we start by thinking about making sure that local economic and workforce development leaders drive the economic development that they want to see in their place. And so what that means is that means in all of our work, we are investing in people that have experience creating jobs, training workers, being those local entrepreneurs, people doing that work. What I've seen in our country, and this is, um, I think people are well-intentioned, but I think it's maybe contributed to some of the problems that we've had. And you've referenced it with like the Sierra Club celebrating these closures, when in fact that really just creates, I think, a lot of political division in our Mm -hmm. country, is I've seen that both at the state and federal policy level, I look at just transition as an economic problem, but I don't see local economic people informing state and federal policy. Right, right. I see I see national inside the Beltway groups doing that, and those are pr- primarily climate groups. Now that's not bad because they they should be doing that because this is this is climate as well. It's a climate problem as well. But to me, we're only going to move forward if we can make sure that the people in these places can have a vibrant economic future for themselves and their families. And why aren't we listening to and developing policy, whether it's at the state or the federal level, that is 
developed and guided by the people who know these issues the best. And those are those local entrepreneurs and local business people. And so that's what we tried to do with our National Economic Transition Initiative is, again, during the Trump administration, there was a little bit of a lull. We knew that at some point there would be an administration that would be friendly and that would be really interested in this, you know, this energy transition and doing it in an equitable economic way. And so we used almost two years during that time to develop our National Economic Transition Platform and do exactly what I'm talking about, which is identify local economic and workforce development, labor, and other leaders from coal communities all around the country to get them to come together to articulate to the federal government, here's what we need in a national ambitious transition program. And that was our National Economic Transition Initiative. And I think that played a, a really important role in the provisions for coal communities that we saw in the um, Chips and Science Act and the Bipartisan Infrastructure Law and the Inflation Reduction Act, and even ARPA to some, you know, to some extent, right? before that. So that work, I think, really got us where we are today. And, and again, I think we were successful because we did exactly what you're asking me about. We made sure that the policy solutions were informed by these local people. And that's not the way we do, we make policy in this country, right? We do right. it in a very top-down way. And it's backwards because it's policy that's intended to help local people, right. but local people are almost never consulted. Because right? there's certain, and so we certain, wanted to flip the script. Sure, and you did, and there's certain assumptions built into that, but local people aren't Absolutely. asked, especially rural people, especially people without advanced degrees, because they're, it's assumed that they're implementers at best. They're not mm -hmm. people who can think about the design. And having been a small part of that national economic transition platform process with you over a couple of years, I can attest that it was some of the most innovative and most effective bottom-up entrepreneurial groups and, and people around the country. So it truly was gathering people who were already figuring out how to build this new economy to varying degrees in different places. And those mm -hmm. were the folks who, with you, created this platform. So let's shift then. And, and by the way, where can folks read the the NET, the National Economic Transition Platform. They can link to it from our website, which is justtransitionfund.org. And it can also still be found at nationaleconomictransition.org. And I can share those links for, for your listeners too. Excellent. Excellent. So mm -hmm. let's talk a little bit about the funding role. Now I want, we have one more question mm -hmm. and, and I want to budget our time because I really want to talk about the broader connections to the rural, yeah. rural New Deal effort. But in addition to the policy work, you have been instrumental in helping these, oh, several dozen, I guess, key groups in coal-dependent, formerly coal-dependent communities with their own resources. Now, part of that mm -hmm. is the technical assistance and the one-stop shop you have to help people get federal resources, but you also mm -hmm. give them money. Because uh, mm -hmm. I've, mm -hmm. been on, I've been on the receiving end of that a couple of times myself. I know that. So tell us about how you don't, you don't have a huge... Uh, endowment, so it's it's relatively modest amounts of money. But mm -hmm. tell us how you invest that money to yeah. kind of spur this along. Yeah, and I'm really proud of it. So thanks for asking that. So we don't have an endowment at all. We raise everything we give out, and so to. And I actually love that. You could probably do a whole segment on philanthropy, and I think that you know we're really goal driven, and we think about. I think we've got this beautiful balance between having impact, but but doing this work in a bottom up way. I think most funders go to an extreme on either end, right? Yeah. So we have to show our results, I guess to say, I guess to say to to be able to to raise more money. So we. Um, 
we had a we had a 10 million budget this year we we're projected to have a 15 million dollar budget next year and I, you know i and the the whole team that i have we we all actually come a lot of us come from small foundations so we're used to leveraging money and so we actually have been helping communities access federal funds since the obama administration so it was an area that we had expertise in we knowing you know doing all the work and seeing sort of the writing on the wall and working closely with the administration we knew that there was going to be this big investment coming so in uh, january or february of 2021 we actually got a big grant from google org and we massively scaled up our federal access center and this again was you know in the access advocate convene it's one of our big strategies we invest again in those local people doing the, in the local economic innovators and we essentially help them access federal funds there's hundreds of billions of dollars available for these coal communities but as many of us who work in this space know just because the money is there at the federal level does not mean that these communities can access it it is exceedingly difficult if you're with a rural community and you're working, you're trying to get money for rural economic development, you have to navigate more than 400 different programs spread across 10 different agencies. They, yes, 400. Yeah. And then and then actually the creation of IRA made it worse. I think it added like 60 new programs or something like that, something crazy. And all of these programs have different requirements, different eligibility rules, all of this stuff. You also often need matching funds, right? You need to provide a cost share. So who can access these funds? Well, rural, the people that need these under-resourced rural places, that the very distressed energy communities that we need, that, that, that we work with, need these funds the most and they're the most hampered. So once we once we sort of saw the writing on the wall and saw that we had, you know, over seven years of experience when we had launched this, you know, we set up our federal access center. What it does essentially is we provide grants and technical assistance to community groups to help them access these federal funds. So our grants can be used by them as matching funds. They can be used to hire grant writers. This is really pragmatic stuff, Anthony. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why we've got such a good reputation in the field and why people really love our work because it, it just makes sense. And not um, a lot of foundations do that. No, right, not a lot right. of foundations do it. And so we also help them navigate this federal morass of, of programs, right? To help them figure out based on their project where they should go, which, which program we think that they have the best chance with. And that's, we know those programs really well because we've got deep relationships with agencies from the USDA to DOE to the EDA. And then um, we even take it one step further and we have people within our team and a, a deep bench of experts that we work with that provide one-on-one -on -one review of their applications. We've got this exciting project going on right now. We just launched a partnership with the Department of Energy Office of, of, of Indian Energy, where we've actually got a grant writer on the ground with Navajo and Hopi communities, and she's helping them literally write their proposals so they can have access to federal funds. Oh, wow. There is no way people could do that if they didn't have if they didn't have help. And so right. I'm really pleased to say, right, so what does this all add up to? Um, in just 2023, and you know, not all the results are in, so we'll, you know, we'll we'll know more in a couple of months when people get their say from the federal government. But we've got like an amazing over 70% approval track record, and just this year, we're on track to help to help drive more than 350 million dollars into communities, and that was just in one year. That's so incredible. we're doing, That's yeah, we're really excited yeah. about the results, yeah. and it's 
you know, we've got a short time window, but anyway, that's the work again, all centered on who are the types of people we support. It's people exactly like we've been talking about those local economic innovators who've got this incredible vision for their communities. Right. Yeah. They're visionaries and pragmatists. That's um, what you exactly. and, you that's and I exactly know a lot right. of them yep. and they're inspiring. Yes, we so do. we've <laughs> only got about three minutes left. So I want to wrap up. Uh, you know about the Rural New Deal. I think you know that when I was asked to, by the Progressive Democrats of America to come up with this and started working mm-hmm. with them, my first instinct was to draw on my own experience and then mm-hmm. to float that with people like yourself. And mm-hmm. not only you, but probably a good seven, eight, maybe 10 of the people who made very substantive comments and improvements to the Rural New Deal as it was taking shape were people who are in the JTF orbit, people doing this mm-hmm. work, not just yeah. in coal communities. We had responses from people in timber communities, agricultural, et cetera. But anyway, my, my wrap-up question is about where you see something like the Rural New Deal, which is essentially um, a concrete platform for mm-hmm. serious investment and regulatory mm-hmm. and other changes that would that mm-hmm. would greatly propel rural po- prosperity. Uh, mm-hmm. Where you see something like that connecting with the work of Just Transition Fund, and do you think something like that could be embraced by progressive and liberal leaders in this country? Because there's been a, a lot of neglect, if not dismissal, of rural issues by progressive and liberal leaders at times. Yeah. Anthony, I think it's fabulous. And, you know, one of the the things that when I, you know, when I talk about this, this work, and if I, you know, if, if we're, if we think about this, if we're successful in cold communities, what have we done? What we've done essentially is we've created a lot of economic opportunity in the rural places in America that have been left behind. What does that mean? That means that there's more, hopefully more, economic parity between rural and urban America. And it's that lack of economic opportunity between those places that is the very essence of your podcast that I think leaves us in the situation that we're in today. Mm-hmm. So the implications are huge. And, you know, just looking out, um, you know, the the, the Congress passed uh, quite a few laws, which we've already talked about, that really benefit coal communities tremendously. But we still need more, right? There are still bigger investments in rural, which I know your Rural New Deal includes, that the places that we work around the country need. So when I'm thinking about like our national policy goals for like 2024 and beyond, we're looking at the Rural New Deal. We're thinking about things like the Rural Investment Initiative and ways that we can build on the economic investments that have made in the, been made in these places now. Um, if you think really quickly about the, the, the Biden administration, again, I really applaud. I'm so excited about the investment in the clean energy sector in particular. But you and I have talked about this. You need investments in a variety of sectors to diversify an economy. One of the programs that gets this right at the national level, at the federal level, is the Recompete program. Mm-hmm. And that allows for more, more broad, almost I would say, um, you know, more broader uh, economic development suit to nuts. We need more of that. And so that's where I would look to policies like the Rural New Deal and other things for, you know, for us to advocate for in, in 2024 beyond. This is a step. This is a really important step, but it's a step and these issues are expensive and they take time. And then just lastly, I would say, and and you sort of refer to this too, but 
I think it's important, you know, people always ask me who are coal communities and the coal communities that we work with are the hardest hit. That means that they tend to be almost almost exclusively rural, which makes sense because when you close something in a rural area, it has an outsized impact. Yes. But they are certainly not all rural communities, right? We are a, coal communities and, and coal communities are a subset of broader energy communi- communities in rural America. So there are many, many more rural communities that we cannot touch um, and that need the support of the type of programs and policies that you're talking about. So I think that's where that is where we intersect. I think ultimately, I, I love, I'm, I'm paraphrasing here, I wish I could quote it exactly, but a quote from Marjorie, one of Marjorie Kelly's books, Marjorie, who has a new book and was on the show called Wealth Supremacy. But in an earlier book, she says that we should be working towards an economy that in its normal functioning creates opportunities for people, builds community and sustains the environment. So that, that so that's mm-hmm. like that's like the norm of economic activity rather than you do economic stuff and then you try to clean up the collateral damage, which is sort of in exactly. our model. So Yeah, it, it really it really is. Yeah, it really yeah. is. I love that. I love that quote too. Yeah, yeah that's great. Well, Heidi, thank you so much for this. This has been excellent. I'm so proud to be associated with you and and JTF in a small way. And um, over this next year in particular, when when politics and policy are going to be on a lot of people's minds, I'm sure we'll be talking a lot about how to how to put together and and leverage recompete and the rural new deal and the NET Mm -hmm. and everything else. So really looking forward to that. There's lots of work to be done. I just want to thank you, too, because I think your work has been I've learned so much from you, so much from you, Anthony, over the years. And your work has been such an inspiration and you've been such a leader in this field. So I'm so honored to get to work with you. And thank you for having me on today. It was really nice to chat. It was terrific. This has been Two Worlds, One Country with our guest, Heidi Binko. I'm Anthony Flacavento, your host, and we'll see you next time.